Having accepted the petition of Thetis, Zeus sends a murderous dream to Agamemnon, imploring him to muster his army and attack Troy. It is notable that Dream is personified, as is Dawn as a goddess, and Rumor as Zeus's crier. So every once in a while you'll see that things are capitalized and they're personified into immortals, right? right. Yeah. So Agamemnon receives the dream and shares it with his war council. The high king or chieftain of the Greeks then elects to test his men and tells the army Zeus commands them to return to Argos in disgrace. The men rush to the ships to leave, but Hera sends Athena to intervene. Athena inspires Odysseus, who in turn rouses the men to stay, reminding them of Calchas's prophecy that they would conquer Troy in the 10th year. So 10 years. 10 before. years. It only takes 10 years, <laughs> right? Hanging, boys. We just finished nine. Why We're you in didn't the tell them that up front? Right. So Nestor... The good oldest, old, good, good old, old Nestor, Nestor, your favorite character, yep. the oldest of the Achaean warlords, encourages the men to stay as well. And notably, Agamemnon only thanks Nestor afterward. There is then a roll call of the Achaean kings. The book ends with a similar roll call for the Trojans, which serves to introduce Prince Hector, commander of the Trojans, and son of Priam, king of Troy. <laughs> All right, so if you're just tuning in to Ascend the Great Books podcast, make sure you go check out the first couple episodes we've done. We've done uh, Why Are We Reading the Great Books. We just got done last week talking about uh, book one of the Iliad. Uh, before that, we talked about like why even read Homer, like why are we starting to read Homer. Uh, so if you haven't checked those, check those out, you can go to the Great Buds, the Great Buds, the Great <laughs> Books podcast.com. Uh, great URL, the Great bookspodcast.com mm -hmm. uh, you can follow us on social media facebook twitter youtube uh we did not put a myspace page up yet we will see we're working on it we'll work on that uh so we're going we're going into the the treacherous book two it is i think don't you think that this that book two has a reputation yeah, in certain ways, uh, maybe like where first readers go to die and quit <laughs> might be a good good way. I think some of them make it through book one with all of its twists and turns, if you will, to borrow that phrase, mm -hmm. and then they make it through well book. Well played. Thank you. I like that. Yeah. And then they uh, make it to book two, and then about halfway through, they're like, why am I reading this book? This is the worst. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, now, you had, so not to put you on the spot, but like, yeah. so this is your first Read through, Correct. right? You're reading it, you know, obviously with the send. Mm -hmm. But this was not your first attempt to no. read. Because book two was already notorious when you came into it this time, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is this this would be the third time, the third attempt to go through the Iliad. The first time I, I actually audiobooked it or attempted to audiobook it, which I know you're not a big fan of. Uh, and I died in, I think, book four. I think I stopped at book four. Hmm. Um, I did not really even listen to book two. I mean, I listened to it, <laughs> but I don't know anything. Like I, I could not even tell at the end of it. If you said, what was that about? I was like, you know what? I have no idea. Um, and so then I was like, nope, I need to read it. And then I made the mistake of getting the wrong translation, which we've talked about the importance of having the right translation, uh, made that mistake. And so this is the, I knew the only way I was going to read the Iliad and get, um, get a lot out of it would be if I read it with a group of other guys, you know, to hold me accountable, to also get, uh, like draw things out that I did, I wouldn't have picked up on. Um, and, and so anyway, so this is the, I'm going to make it through this time. I'm going to persevere. Good. good, good, good. Yeah. So we have our Sunday great book group, our little mm -hmm. small group that we're running. Uh, we're getting together and, and reading this text as well. Do you think we should have different podcasts every once in a while to break it up on like how to host, uh, you know, a great books podcast or a great books club. <laughs> how to host a great books podcast. Yeah. We just started. We just, here's our advice. We know all about it. Right. Um, no, I, I think that we should explore, uh, I think we've talked about it like in little ways, but I think we probably should do an episode that actually dives into like how to host one yourself. Right. Right. So like, what does the hospitality look like? What is mm -hmm. the atmosphere to like that you should create? 
Um, what is the importance of inviting people who have never read it versus also people who have read it? Like, there's a lot of different things that I think we should pay attention to in order to generate a good group. Yeah, I think we'll get into hospitality. I think that's that's certainly one. I think the other one too is is uh, a certain humility, right? So Homer is the teacher. We're coming uh, to him to learn. You know, I you don't have to. I think the thing that actually precludes people the most from starting these kind of great books and some of the commentary that we receive online and that I get on Twitter and things like this are people who want to start reading it, right? It's like I want to read the Iliad or I want to read the Republic or something. Um, but they don't, they don't have any support structure. They don't know, like they don't, and also because our education's kind of suffers great privations, like they don't have any liberal arts tradition to pull from. Mm -hmm. And so I think like we've talked about, I think one of the reasons that like we even started Ascend is simply to help people like have an avenue, have uh, an infrastructure, a a, um, tool set to actually have these conversations, right? Mm -hmm. So like you can just read it along with us, right? Right. You can listen to the podcast, like you can look at our guide, right? So like, for instance, every book, right, uh, we're going to open up with a summary of what happened in that, right? So we we read that at the beginning, we read that straight off of our guide, right? So here's just a snapshot summary. Here's what happened in this book, like how'd you do tracking the text? Uh, The guide, do you think we can add... Uh, and we could create a little macro or something like that to where anytime we say Nestor, it actually puts old man Nestor <laughs> instead, and we can reference him that way. Good old we could. man I, Nestor. So we talk a lot on this podcast about tracking things, like, oh, right. we need we need to flag this and track that. Right. I'd like to track your love of Nestor and see if it endures some of Nestor's longer speeches. So you want to talk about <laughs> endu- you want to talk about endurance? Like sometimes it's like, all right, Nestor, we like we're in the middle of a war, and this is paragraph nineteen, and right. like we've got to wrap this up. Well, see, this is the beauty. This is what how people actually know that I am really reading this with you with everybody, right? Is because I'm going to say things on here <laughs> that is clearly I'm going to have to re- re- recant later on, right? But right. Like, you know what? Hey, guys, remember when I said. That I really liked Nestor. You nailed the mythology on Hephaestus last episode. I did, and I got bonus. You points. got bonus points. We haven't even figured out how I, to cash those in. I'm, but you I'm got bonus points. Yeah. All right. So the Iliad. It's yes. a book by Homer. Correct. We're in the second book or it's chapter. By, it's by Homer. Yeah, that was my. It's okay, so we have to tell that story. It's just it's a really quick story, but we we have our Sunday kind of great books. We're reading the Iliad. You know, it's it's a good group of men. We had twelve, and one of the guys is talking about the Iliad. And he, well, first he says Hector. First he says that Hector wrote the Iliad, right? And then he has to look at the front of the book. (laughs) He has to look, he opens the, he has to close his book to look at the front to remind himself who actually wrote the Iliad. It was a very charming moment. In his defense, he realized very quickly it was not Hector. He blanked. (laughs) And so he... He had a judge's memory. <laughs> but it was only better because he was in the midst of an argument of right. like, this is my perception of the text, like which obviously comes with like, you know, I'm doing an attentive reading, like right. I've noticed these subtleties, and right. then he has to, then he blanks Look. on who wrote it. Right. Yeah, it was just good. Classic. Providence will do that to you. Yes. Um, so anyway, okay. So any, I mean, we had our little summary mm-hmm. of book two. Any, any questions or takeaways just so like on the general narrative? Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm going to have questions about the second half of the book. Uh, okay, but we can we can we'll table that. Okay, um, so it starts off. I think, um, you know, it starts off with a dream. I think it's a good place to kind of have an introduction. So we have this dream, as we mentioned, like Zeus. Now, right, he is kind of bound to his promise to Achilles' mother, right, right. Thetis. And so he basically just to like remind everyone, right? So he's promised that basically. The Trojans will have at least a temporary victory, mm-hmm. right? We have to be very careful and have narrow confines, I think, on his promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're going to push the Achaeans up against the ships and slaughter them, mainly uh, the point being until Agamemnon's pride breaks. and Calls for Achilles. Calls for Achilles, and they have to have some kind of reconciliation. And Achilles is apparently perfectly fine with watching his countrymen be slaughtered for the sake of his pride against Agamemnon's, right? Yes. So Very little piety. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of track through this. So we have the dream, uh, Zeus sends this dream to Agamemnon and what's like the basic takeaway of the dream? Well, he tricks him. Okay. He tricks Agamemnon. Like he, he lies to him. Yeah. So he does lie to him, right? So he basically says, listen, Troy is, 
is ready. It's primed to fall. You need you're you're going to be marching on the broad streets of Troy, right. right? Like I finally have promised you these things, and like you need to attack. Now's right. the time to attack. So he's he's goading the Achaeans. He even brings in Nestor into the, like saying, "Yeah, your boy Nestor." Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is a good thing to to mention is that the gods when they speak to people, um, will often take on the appearance, the voice. Uh, this is a dream, but even in the dream, it presents then as Nestor. Like, mm-hmm. they will present as someone that you know, mm-hmm. right? Typically, not always, but typically they will, right. right? They're more intimate with some people, and on those people, they tend to appear as they are, right? Athena appears as she is to Achilles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, they take uh, the form of someone. Mm-hmm. So, Dream comes down and uh, tells Agamemnon this at, in the form of Nestor. Now, this one... You know, we get this narrative, or we get a really repetitive narrative. So the dream is told three times. Mm-hmm. Zeus tells the dream, then dream goes off and gives it to Agamemnon, and then Agamemnon turns around and repeats it to his war council, right, and says, this is the dream that Zeus gave me. Again, you know, sometimes this drives people nuts, and but we have to endure, we have to be attentive. Uh, and I think one of the things here is, is that sure it's helpful maybe for a bard who has to, you know, repeat these things and is allowing him some time to think about what comes next and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, as we've mentioned previously, you got to really pay attention when narratives are repeated because typically what ends up happening is something is taken away, something's added, a perception is given. And so like, you know, the, the cascading effect from Zeus to dream to Agamemnon to the war council might not all be, you know, one for ones, mm-hmm. right? This one I don't think, I mean, I'm happy to be pushed back on, but this one I don't think uh, is too terribly, um, you know, doesn't ha- suffer any kind of two um, discrepancies, if you will. Dream does mention that he pities you now, right? When Nestor, when he presents in the, the shade of Nestor, if you will, mm-hmm. he says, you know, Zeus pities Agamemnon. That's not a phrase that Zeus uses, right? If memory serves, like Zeus doesn't actually say that. Um, this hmm. one's pretty... I did not pick up on that. Well, we can actually look real fast, see if I'm right, but I don't think he, Zeus mentions um, that he has any kind of pity for Agamemnon. I think it's a... Yeah, it, he does. At the beginning, you mean the first one? It's on line like 31. But he says... But he has, yeah, line 31. But he has you in his heart. He pities you now. Yeah, so that's the dream telling that to Agamemnon. Uh-huh. And then on 77... Mm-hmm. Or so, roughly. You know, a- also adds it in as Agamemnon. Correct. So the question is then, is that in the original one that Zeus tells Dream? See, at the beginning of the text. Okay. See, so like at the beginning of book two, uh-huh. right, he says, Go murder a stream to the fast Achaean ships, and once you reach Agamemnon's shelter, rouse him and order him word for word exactly as I command. Tell Atreides to arm his long-haired Achaeans to attack once more, full in breath. Now he can take the broad seas of Troy. Mm-hmm. Immortal gods who the Olympus, uh, the Olympus clash no more, which is completely false, right. right? There's no peace amongst the gods. Hera's appeals have brought them round and all agree. Griefs are about to crush the men of Troy. Um, yeah, yeah, it comes <clears> to the second and third dream. It didn't come in the first, right? So right. Uh, when, when King Edwin and Ron is was talking about this, he adds that in. Well, he receives it first from Dream, and then he repeats it to his war council. But Zeus doesn't actually say that he pities him, right? right? So it's these, these things, like, again, is there, like, a giant takeaway here? Probably not. But I think it's like... Shed, shed better light on himself. Yeah, but even just, like, from our approach and our skill set and reading the text, these are the types of things that I think we should watch. Like, we should note that Zeus really didn't actually say that. That's a commentary from Dream. Mm-hmm. Um, because in this text right here, this might be innocuous, like it doesn't actually like, you know, mean anything. But in other places in the Iliad or the Odyssey, like that could make a big difference, mm-hmm. right? About what the actual war council would know, right? So he tells the war council his dream. And then he does something really interesting. He decides he's going to test the men, a time honored custom. He will test the men. And so he, um, you know, Nestor gives his you know, advice. So that's good for Nestor. And then at 120, a little bit above 120, I just want to make a note that the scepter that Agamemnon has, right, his kingly scepter is actually made by Hephaestus, um, as we kind of talked about. Which that. scepter, like, it, it, it symbolizes uh, the power given t- from Zeus, right? Mm-hmm. 
in that in that kind of like in the notes, I believe that's what he says. And uh, Fagel says back in book one that uh, the scepter is a symbol of Zeus's power and authority. Right. Yes. I think that's and that's somewhat ubiquitous, right? I mean, we would look at uh, David, right, has the rod of iron that represents right his his kingly rule, mm-hmm. and so uh, I think the scepter here represents that same thing. Mm-hmm. It's actually you know made by the gods. So. Let's look at the test, right? So he tests his men. So you get this cascading uh, reiteration of the dream, mm-hmm. and now you would think then what would ha- you think what would happen is that he then there's a fourth one in which he would then tell the men his dream, right? Right, and tell the armies and say, hey, like now's the time. But he does almost the exact opposite, right? So look at one thirty. He says, Kronos' son, so we remember Kronos being Zeus's father. Right, so um, Zeus. Right, we also have a cascading patricide throughout Greek mythology, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, so Zeus has overthrown his father. So Kronos' son has trapped me in madness, blinding ruin. Zeus is a harsh, cruel god. He vowed to me long ago, he bowed his head that I should never embark for home till I had brought the walls of Ilium crashing down, which is another word for Troy, which is why this is called the Iliad, right? Mm-hmm. It's about Ilium. Um, there's a joke there that the name of this book is actually uh, the Troy story, right? Like Toy Story, right? So if you actually parse out what that means. So, but now, I know, I just gave, I really played your role there, sorry. <laughs> I gave a pun. But I, it's not, I said there was a pun that could be made. I did not actually own it too much to myself, so... Anyway, the Troy story. That joke was to infinity and beyond. Right, thank you. Okay, we're moving on for everyone's sake. So, but now I see only he plotted brutal treachery. Now he commands me back to Argos in disgrace. Mm-hmm. So basically then he just tells his men like... Time uh, to go home. Yeah, he says, cut and run, sail home to the fatherland we love. We'll never take the broad streets of Troy. So here, Zeus tells him it's time to march, mm-hmm. Right. He then tells his war council, Zeus gave me a stream, it's time to march, however, I'm going to test the men. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he tells them basically the exact opposite. Ironically, the test is actually more true than not. Right. One of the questions I think we can ask here uh, is, what is the relationship between uh, the kings and Zeus particularly, right? Like, is there, how does this actually work? Because... As you see, there's a wonderful line here. Um, let's see, because he gives the dream to his men, and then we see, as we mentioned, right, Athena basically comes rushing down, um, and then basically Odysseus is like trying to play this role of getting everyone to actually turn around. Like, no, we're not going to do this. Like, you need to be brave. You need to have fortitude. We're going to tell Agamemnon that we're here to fight, right? And so down at like 220, a little bit uh, after 2.20, he's um, explaining this, and he has an interesting uh, observation. First he says, you know, now he's only testing us. Soon he'll be he'll bear down hard. Didn't we all hear his plan in secret council? So he's he's talking to one of the fellow chieftains, right, that, that actually heard this plan. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you running back the ship? Yeah, he's you, like, you idiots. Yeah, you knew he was going to test you. Right. But God forbid his anger destroy the army he commands. The rage of kings is strong. They're nursed by the gods. Their honor comes from Zeus. They're dear to Zeus, the god who rules the world. Now, what's interesting here is like on its face, I think we could just have um, somewhat of a basic reading of Zeus's will uh, basically uh, is cascading down, right? And the, the kings, like through the kings, and the kings basically serve as these uh, intermediaries for Zeus's will on earth, right? So just like this, like Zeus has to get Zeus has to get something done. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he sends this dream uh, to Agamemnon. Agamemnon then is playing it out, and so Zeus's will is done through the king. So the kings are very close to the gods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned something about even more towards. You know, is there a deeper read of this in the nature? Of Zeus himself and the kings, and you made you started to make a comparison there. Can you can you maybe parse that out for us? Well, just in the relationship of, of what he actually asked, and then what Agamemnon did to test. Yeah. So how are Zeus and Agamemnon like? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, they're close because Zeus rules the world through the kings. Maybe whether they they know it or not, or mm-hmm. they know it, they like it or not. But how does Agamemnon's rule in book two 
and Zeus's rule like reflect one another. Well, because they're both deceivers. Yeah. They're both deceiving each other. And ironically, that Zeus is deceiving Agamemnon, and then Agamemnon deceives his people, and the deception of uh, to the people is actually more closer to reality than what it was from the deception of Zeus to Agamemnon. Yeah, no, I think you nailed it, right? So yeah, just Zeus lies to Agamemnon, right? right. His his it's it's not true that the gods have stopped fighting. It's not true that Troy is primed for destruction. Like none right. of that's true, actually, because of the promise made to Thetis, it's the exact opposite. Now right. we got to go through this whole another rigmarole, mm-hmm. right, before Troy falls, and then yeah, Agamemnon turns around and treats his armies the same way that Zeus treats him. Right. But as you're absolutely correct, there's an irony there, right? Because when he says, oh, well, Zeus actually has committed brutal treachery on me, right? He's actually much more correct than he realizes. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think, no, I think you're, you're dead on. And so there's this really interesting kind of like multiple layers here of when Odysseus talks about that the kings are close to the gods. Yes, they are through a certain agency of how Zeus's will is enacted. But on the other way, they tend to resemble his rule. Right, in the way that he rules. Right. So, okay. No, very good. So, um, yeah, and it, it's the same thing, actually, you can make an argument, too, with the, with, the, um, with the dream, right? So when he's telling the dream, and dream actually tells him, Zeus pities you, that also can be read similarly, right? Or right. dream knows that That's Agamemnon's being lied to. Right. So Zeus pities you, if that even is true, it's not for the reason that he thinks. It's not because you've been here, you know, slogging away for feels, 10 years. It's bad for you. Right. It's about that you're getting lied to and you're going to get used again. Right. So, again, kind of these multiple layers as we kind of understand uh, Zeus. What about Odysseus? We've talked about him a little bit. He plays uh, much more of a prominent role in this in book two, right? Athena comes down to him. He's, he's mustering the troops back. He's using that rhetoric. Um, yeah, and I think this is what, you know, I kind of uh, hinted at this last week, but that I see Odysseus more of the rallying of the troops guy, the, the, the hype man, the guy who gets everybody's emotions flared up to go into battle, to char- you know, to charge into battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, prob- probably it's, it's from this chapter, especially the, the, the first part of, of, of book two, is he, he's like, guys, you idiots, he's already told us he was going to do this plan, and you, and you guys are falling for it and you know what the answer is you know what his plan is mm-hmm. and you're still falling for it you idiots no we're about to go in there and and like let's let's rally the troops let's go in there and fight yeah i know I, I i agree I, I very much agree odysseus let's look at it um when athena comes to him right there's some questions that i think we've been raising that are good so let's kind of look so okay. this is around 200 okay um so athena has to come down because again they don't like so notice that the gods, right, even in the midst of Zeus telling them, hey, by the way, the gods have peace, mm-hmm. as soon as Zeus does this, Hera and Athena have no idea what's happening. And so they've got to send Athena again down. to down to try and fix things. And she goes immediately to Odysseus. And I think there's a certain intimacy here, right? Because she comes immediately, um, you know, looking for Odysseus. She finds him first. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, she's talking to him about basically like you need to use your winning words and you need to turn us around. Yeah, she even says, uh, she found Odysseus first, a mastermind like Zeus. Yes. So let's look at that. Um, the mastermind like Zeus. So, you know, these little phrases, um, we you know we've kind of looked at them, you know, they're kind of hangovers, if you want to use that phrase, from it being oral poetry. Mm-hmm. My question is, is particularly maybe you as like coming to the text a little bit more raw when you read, and I don't know if there's a distinction between your first read and and now, but when you read that thing, a mastermind like Zeus, do you take that as a good statement or a bad statement? Uh, No, I I mean, I think it's very clear in book one that he can be deceived relatively easy. Who can? Zeus. You think he can be deceived easily? Well, I mean, Hera backs him up into a corner and he has a result in, uh, threatening with violence to get her away from him. Yeah. Uh, it's, at least it appears that, you know, like you, you, you'd mentioned last week, is that Zeus, uh, once he makes a commitment, that's it's set in stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then how you get around 
that being set in stone is uh, distract Zeus, is to lie to Zeus, is to trick him. Um, so that way, y- y- you're you're kicking the the can down the road, so to speak. Yeah. No, I think I think that's an interesting take. So he yeah, he certainly can be deceived. I mean, Zeus isn't known for for being uh, an intellect. He's known for being powerful. I think that's interesting. I think it'd be interesting to see how that plays out as we as we move through the text. Like he yeah. certainly is powerful, right? Um, where he basically can tell the other gods, like, "So what if you found out my plans? Like, what are you going to do about it?" Right. right. Um, you know, the mastermind like Zeus, right? What we I think what we see here in the Iliad is he'll have these promises, these things he's doing, et cetera. Like, you know, as the Iliad opened, right? Is the will of Zeus always moved towards its end? Right. Right. I think that's where that mastermind phrase comes from is that no matter how these gods fight against it, no matter what happens, is Zeus's will always done? Mm-hmm. Right. Which I would, I would argue probably the answer is yes. Right. But even in that, like, you know, I'll tell you kind of like my knee jerk reaction is like the first time I read this, like Odysseus, a mastermind like Zeus, I'm just like, man, Odysseus is just like the best person. Like, he's just awesome. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and also, like, I, I have like a certain, um, you know, it's nice. Like, he's the guy that, like, Athena comes down and finds, right? He's right. the guy that's closest to wisdom. Um, you know, he's a tactician. Look, he's trying to fix Agamemnon's mistakes. Like, I think there's a lot here to say, like, Odysseus is like a good person. Like, this is, he's an admirable person, right? Like, he has, and like a mastermind like Zeus, notice that, like, Agamemnon's not getting that. Like, that's not his, like, praise. That's not the one he gets. It's no. Odysseus. Right. And, you know, which might be why, as we mentioned in the summary, I just found it notable. I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, but I just found it notable that, you know, Odysseus turns all these men around, um, you know, and, and plays his part via wisdom. Nestor kind of tacks on towards the end, and then Agamemnon thanks Nestor and doesn't thank Odysseus. Mm. And, you know, again, if we kind of take this theory that like Homer doesn't really give us a lot of unnecessary details or we take him seriously that he didn't just forget to thank Odysseus like that's an intentional act right that's a definite intentional slight yeah so it's interesting that like you know is he jealous like the mastermind like Zeus of course he is well that's probably an easy ball in a tee of whether Agamemnon is jealous or right you know. it's the same with him and Achilles mm-hmm. being able to and Achilles being able to fight right so I think there's a lot of ways in which you look at the text, particularly in the beginning, and say, like, Odysseus is, like, a good character, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's, and he's, you know, amongst these men, he's certainly one of the best and most virtuous. My read this time, you know, I had, I'm not sure it's, like, a contrary read, but I had, like, a lot of, a, a different question come up, which is, we just spent a whole lot of time talking about how, you know, Zeus sends a murderous stream, a lie, mm-hmm. an actual brutal treachery mm-hmm. to Agamemnon. And then Agamemnon turns around and acts like Zeus by lying to his own men. Mm-hmm. And I just really had a question of like, you know, whether is being called a mastermind like Zeus an actual positive? Right. Because if Zeus would have known that Agamemnon would have done that, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have sent that dream. You think so? Well, it seems like it because now uh, Agamemnon lies to his troops, and now the rea- like the truth is actually being played out, and that's not what Zeus wanted. Yeah, I think if um, yeah, certainly because I guess you could read it like that because if if they get in their ships and leave, then then he doesn't make good on his promise. Right. Yeah. So I think there. I I guess one of the things that stood out to me was, and maybe it's just an asterisk, is whether being compared to Zeus is actually a positive. Right. Right. Um, and then maybe there's a distinction, too, between maybe how the ancient Greeks would look at it as a positive. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, particularly if it just comes down to raw power or, you know, would we do this? And what does that mean for the character of Odysseus? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's something to to watch as we continue to to watch his character kind of like unfurl okay. in the text. Um, yeah. So we have the Zeus and the kings. We have who is Odysseus. We see that. Um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention on him because uh, you were right to point out that phrase, is that he knew the goddess's voice. Mm-hmm. So when Athena comes to him uh, as wisdom, he knows her. He has an intimacy with her, right? He knows her voice. And this kind of then pushes the scales back, I think, a little bit, right? right. That, like, he he knows, uh, you know, this wisdom. And I think, too, I mean, not to keep drilling down on this, but I just, to show you, not show you, but I mean, just to show some of the depth that I think is is here, is that I, I am curious as to, you know, 
whether Homer is intentionally, which I would assume the answer is yes, like that phrase, like a mastermind like Zeus, and then which is couched in this narrative of Odysseus having this like intimacy, right, with Athena. Mm-hmm. Um, where does Athena come from? Like from Zeus. Yeah, particularly from where? She comes out of his head. Right, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, so he's a mastermind like Zeus. Athena comes from the mind of Zeus, right? Like, Zeus literally has, like, a migraine, and his head's cracked open, and out comes, like, you know, this goddess, you know, halfway dressed for war, who's also wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that I think there might be, um, I think it's notable, right, that in in this context, he's called the mastermind of Zeus, has this intimacy with Athena, um, by knowing her voice, and she's also the goddess that came from his mind, right? Came from his head. I think there's a lot of layers going on here that we kind of have to. That's good to know. Yeah, I didn't track all of that for sure. That kind of yeah. Also, we see her eyes again. We mentioned that previously, right? right? The mm-hmm. bright-eyed goddess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think Athena. You know, I think personally, like if you asked me, where do I gravitate in the text? I'm probably more sensitive to the narratives that Athena's in just because I find her a riveting character, right? She's a female goddess. She's associated with wisdom. However, she seems to have this kind of military streak about her, which we have to kind of understand as well, right? She wears like a a helmet. She has a shield. Mm -hmm. There's a war side uh, to her as well. And I think she's a multifaceted character uh, that adds a lot of uh, thickness, I think, to the text, Mm -hmm. if you will. So, okay, we'll sally forth though and move on. So, okay, Adam, would you like to tell us about the ugliest man? <laughs> would you like to tell us about the ugliest man who ever came to Troy? Yeah, what a way to be introduced for all of like antiquity, <laughs> like for for all of, of time to be right. introduced as uh, the ugliest man that who ever came to Troy. Yeah, uh, Theracides. How do you say or how do you say his name? Sure, Theracides. 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 Or Theracites. Theracites. Yeah. We can call him the ugliest man. The ugliest man to ever come. Yeah. So when I first read this uh, part, I thought uh, that he was like a clown who kind of doesn't respect authority. And then as I reread it and like was trying to track the narrative, I think I kind of had a little bit of a change of heart. And I think that change of heart was kind of confirmed in our great books mm-hmm. uh, group, right? Um uh, one of the guys kind of talked about how he was a for or not a for a, a representation of kind of the common man. Yeah. So what, what do we have here? We have Odysseus. He's trying to round all the troops back. Uh, you can't run to the ships, etc. And here comes you know Theracetes, Theracites, right? Yeah. The ugliest man who came to Troy, and. You know, he is, I mean, they, they he's bandy-legged and clubbed foot and shoulders humped up. I mean, he's very clearly, you know... He's an ugly dude. He's very, yeah, his his skull warped to a point. I mean, Homer really clarifies this guy is really Olympic-level yeah. ugly. Yeah. So, you know, but then, uh, yeah, I had a similar thing where I what I noted is, um, like, kind of 270 to 280, he's critiquing Agamemnon, right? Home we go in our ships, abandon him here in Troy, to wallow in all his prizes. He'll see if he likes us to have propped him up or not. Look now, Achilles, a greater man he disgraces, right? Seizes and keeps his prize, tears her away himself, but no gall in Achilles. Achilles lets it go. If not, Atreides, that outrage would have been your last. So my, like, kind of coupling what you said with, like, my observation was, my question was, is he wrong? Right, so mm-hmm. he's clearly this ugly character. He's clearly railing against Agamemnon. But then I was like, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sympathetic to his words. I mean, Agamemnon, like, is that how he's doing? Is this the type of ruler he is? And yeah, in our great books, someone made um, the comment and on some commentary they had, you know, kind of plumbed the depths of that um, this character represents the common man. Right, so he's not godlike. He's not mm-hmm. a beautiful, handsome person. He doesn't have this. You know, my mom was a goddess, or my father was Zeus. Right, he is an ugly, common man. <clears throat> but here's the common man who can call out the high king, right, and do so. I think well, largely like he has nothing, nothing to lose. He's like, listen, I'm an ugly mm-hmm. dude. I can, I can say what I want. It's not like you can do anything to me. Yeah, and he, you know, and so he he's calling out Agamemnon, this high king, and I think that 
uh, if I recall correctly from our group, you know, there was this thing that like the, there's, there's a teaching moment from Homer here, right? If you really want to push into this, where he makes this character a comedy, right? Like, here, this, he's so ugly, and we all right. laugh at that. But then really some truth. But he's putting the truth in the mouth of a commoner, but the only way he can do that if he ma- is if he makes it comical. Right. Right? And I think that, um, you know, Agamemnon's really not doing what he needs to be doing. And I think probably some of the response to this uh, in support of it is I noticed that when Odysseus responds, so this is after 280, it's it's not an argument, it's not a rational argument back, meaning that he doesn't actually engage the substance of the debate, mm-hmm. right? He says, well, this is why Agamemnon... up. Yeah, this is an argument of, of ethos. This is one of character, right? Who are you to wrangle with kings? You alone. No one, I say, no one alive, less soldierly than you. Again, so is Odysseus a mastermind like Zeus? I mean, this is not really an intellectual, like an intellectual argument here. Mm-hmm. Well, this becomes this becomes a power play, right? Because eventually he cracks down at three ten, a little bit above that, right? He cracks the scepter across his back and shoulders, and so he resorts to physical. Yeah, it's a, it's a power. A, it reduces back to power, right? So there's a little bit of a rhetorical thing at the beginning. It doesn't work. He then, uh, you know, smashes him across the shoulders. He has this, you know, bloody. Well, bulged up, blah, 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 blah. Um, you could, I mean, if you wanted to, it could be a stretch. You can make some comparisons here between Zeus and Hera, right? Mm-hmm. And how Zeus interacts with Hera, right. right? Where it's, there's some rhetoric in the beginning. At the end, it's like, listen, I'll just, I'll just strangle you. Right. Right. Be quiet. Um, and it, it becomes a comedy, right? The morale was low, but the men laugh now. So I, this is, this is one of those texts that, you know, I, this is my third read. And I think it's only on the third read that I, I actually appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's always caught me by not surprise, but it's like one of those things that you look at, you know, I know there's more here, but I don't know what. Right. Like they don't Homer's not just bored and inserting like, oh, by the way, here's the ugliest guy alive. Right. Like what's happening here? I really do like the theory that like this captures the commoner, the common man having an accurate read on things and critiquing those who are doing wrong. Mm-hmm. But they're above his station. And so Homer presents it as a comedy particularly because keep in mind his audience are the aristocrats, mm-hmm. right? Not the commoners. Right. So, and I think this is really in a lot of ways, maybe our first introduction or maybe a good example to Homer teaching his audience, which I think is really key for understanding the Iliad, right? He's actually passing on a lesson here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I didn't catch that the first time. I mean, I wasn't sure. Uh, th- again, uh, the beauty of reading text together with a group. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, iron sharpens iron, right? Yeah. yeah. So on my read, like my third read through, I was like, man, there's something here. Like, look, he gives this response, how Odysseus does, et cetera. But then, um, you know, when our buddy commented on like him being a representative of the common man, it just seemed to make all the puzzle pieces yeah. come together. Click. Right. And so, yeah, clicking puzzles. So yeah. we're good. Okay. So, so then Odysseus has this interesting thing on like about 340 where he's, t- he's talking to everybody and says, any fighter cut off from his wife for a month in war. Basically, he's talking about like, listen, typically we go to war for like not more than a month. Mm-hmm. And now we realize we're, we're going from one month and this is nine, we're in the ninth year. This is how long this has been. Ninth year comes around, the ninth, we've hung, hung in here. Yeah, and, and like, basically, say like what humiliation it would be to hold on so long, and then at the very end, in in the eleventh hour, to go to go home empty-handed. What are you guys thinking? And so, to me, this is this is, again, this is Odysseus rallying the troops, trying to get them to go. Like, guys, we've been doing this. We've invested nine years, and you guys are wanting to uh, sail home now. Like, how right. embarrassing would that be to go home empty-handed after and have nothing to show? For over nine years, when typically when we go to war, it's less than a month. Yeah, no, I, and you bring up this point too. Earlier, you raised a qu- when we gave our summary at the beginning, we talked about the omen, and you kind of raised the question of, well, when did they know about the omen? Mm-hmm. Right? Are they are so? Another way is Odysseus like just now informing them that like by the way, like endure because it's a 10, like we're in the 10th year, right? They've completed right. nine years. We're in the 10th year. Like it should be happening soon. Mm-hmm. Like, is this something new or is this something like they all knew like from the outset? And I think that answer, um, it's a good question. It's not one that I, I really thought about, but if you look at like 350 and go down, 
This is where he starts talking about the uh, omen. And if you look, he says, why it seems like only yesterday or the day before when our vast armada gathered moored at Aulis, Aulis, uh, A-U-L-I-S. I have to look it up. Anyway, that, I'm pretty sure that is the same uh, island that they, when he says moored on, that was the same island they were trapped at because of Artemis. Hmm. Right? So um, my point there being is that this omen, right, of like the 10th year and like the person, the snake eating the sparrows and whatever, and Calchas giving like, hey, this is what's going to happen. That actually happened like right at the beginning. Like they went into this knowing like, well, I guess not into this. They got halfway on their journey and realizing like, oh, this is going to be a decade long Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't process. have done it otherwise, right? Probably odds, not. Odds are. Yeah, you would think maybe not. Um, let me just look real fast back on our guide. Yeah, it's the same island. So that's the one in which Artemis trapped them. So while they were on there, they have this omen that they're going to, uh, you know, which, you know, it's a snake devoured the sparrow with her brood, ate. This is between 380 and 390. As a snake devoured the sparrow with her brood, ate, and the mother made ninth, she borne them all. So we will fight in Troy that many years, and then then in the tenth we'll take her broad streets. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is they're told this on the way. So Odysseus is reminding them, like, why are you dum dums running back right. to your ships? Like we only have a little bit more to endure, and right. then we have you know what's promised to us by Zeus. So this is another. By the way, this is then another promise by Zeus, right? Or at least an interpretation of a prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, I don't know if we get the head nod certainty here um, that you guys have 10 years to labor mm-hmm. here. Then your boy Nestor comes in. Good old Nestor. He gives his speech, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Um, yeah. He's rallying the troops. Yeah, let's... Uh, so I just... Maybe I maybe take too much enjoyment and poking holes in your view of Nestor, but let's uh, <laughs> let's look at 420, right? So let's just hear his wholesome advice on why they should uh, I didn't say fight. He, he, was, he, he gives wholesome advice. No, I, I heard you. You he, he was yeah. like, this is the grandfatherly figure of the Iliad, like good old grandpa. Wo- yeah, World War II type of <laughs> grandfather. Which... Never does anything wrong. That's what I heard. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So now let no man hurry to sail for home, not yet, till he beds down with a faithful Trojan wife. Payment in full for the groans and shocks of war we have all borne for Helen. Has to be a faithful one. Yeah, that is a... It, like, has to be a faithful Trojan That's a loaded, loaded me- metaphor there, yeah. or a, a modifier. Yeah, so anyway, that's so... I mean, again, he's, he's trying to show <laughs> them, like, hey, we're, we're close. Like He means well. The spo- yeah, I'm not saying that the end justifies the means here. <laughs> he means well. I mean, it's just, you know, he has to motivate the men. So just the Trojan wives, they just, you know, it's a motivation. Right. It works. Okay. No, I'm just, I'm just kind of pushing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, and then like you mentioned that King Agamemnon praises Nestor. Yeah. He this. doesn't, he doesn't praise Odysseus, which I, yeah, it's but a note. blames Zeus. Yeah. Zeus, that's, uh, what is that? That's right after, that's between 440 and 450. Yeah. By Cronus' son, Zeus with the shield of storm insists on embroiling me in painful struggles, futile wars of words. Yeah, he does blame him. So then he switches, right? And then he says, you know, any man I catch, X, Y, and Z. So there is one thing I want to note before we move on, which is if we go back to the quote I read from Nestor, we'll leave poor Nestor alone. Okay. But... This is several times in this book, mm-hmm. and we've already had some already in book one. Is mentioned Helen. Yes, and yeah. we don't have we have not received yet a robust understanding of who Helen is. Mm-hmm. In book three, we'll get a little bit more of like who some she clarity. is, some clarity, etc. So maybe just like by way of like a preliminary uh, introduction, mm-hmm. like you know, what do you know about Helen and her backstory? Well, I don't want to give too much away. I'm not sure what parts uh, I can say now that won't be uh, giving away uh, in book three. Okay, let's just do. What, I think this. Where, where where is that? It's uh, a little after four twenty is when she's mentioned. She's mentioned okay. at um, one uh, line uh, one eighty nine uh, four twenty or four twenty three and six eighty two. Um, in this chapter, so she's one so, of these. Oh yeah, go ahead. So she's in this. She's in these things when she's like, "Wait, who is this? Like, who's Helen, mm-hmm. and what is her relationship to the war?" Which again is something that we're going to have to uh, play out. Yeah, 
the one in 400s and the one in 600s, both are like, we're bearing the shocks of war, the groans for Helen, right? right. So Helen, what we know about her like backstory right now, and then we'll see what gets uh, more robustly set forward in book three. She is, um, her, well, her father is Zeus, okay? So her father is Zeus. Her mother um, was married to the king of Sparta. So her, if you want to say her earthly father, if you want to use that language okay. or foster, whatever you want to say, is the king of Sparta, right? And she is beyond gorgeous. She is divinely beautiful, like rivaling Aphrodite, etc. Smoking hot. Right. That's exactly how the Greeks would have said it. Mm-hmm. So then, the but the problem is, um, as beauty does, is that literally everyone in ancient Greece wants to marry her. So all these suitors from all these different city-states are petitioning the king of Sparta to marry uh, his daughter. Mm-hmm. And he probably rightly understands that if he picks one or the other, or if he gives her someone, war is going to happen. Right. Yeah. And so, and he does not want People to People are going to be mad. Right. Like, and he does not want to get destroyed. So he can't figure out what to do about all these suitors. So he actually turns to our mastermind like Zeus. He turns to Odysseus mm-hmm. and asks Odysseus what to do about the suitors. So Odysseus tells him and gives him, uh, what was probably wise advice or it solved his problem, practical advice that what you should do is, is that you should just bind them all to an oath. It says, I'm not going to pick anyone until all these suitors agree that like we will all collectively defend the marriage of Helen. So like if I give her to so-and-so and then so-and-so tries to come and steal her or attack or whatever, like all of Greece will like attack on her behalf. Making packs. Right. So like this, they agree. And so then he picks uh, a prince, uh, Menelaus, mm-hmm. who is actually Agamemnon's brother, brother and uh, sets him up then to become king of Sparta. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like the preliminary backstory right now. And so then in book three, we're going to see Homer's going to play that out then about, okay, so why are, why are they all now in Troy? Mm-hmm. Why, are they, why is this war, right, uh, on behalf of Helen? Or why are they bearing the shocks and groans of war for Helen? Mm-hmm. Right, but the oath that Helen's father, um, you know, her earthly father, had them all uh, be binded by the you know the suitors be bound to is not in the Iliad. Homer never explains that, right? So it's worth kind of mentioning. There's also, as a side note, um, it is also a foreshadowing of Odysseus. Odysseus too, when he gets to the Odyssey, will have his own problem with suitors. Hmm. So he actually answers one for the king of Sparta, and then later on, he's going to have to actually have his own problem with suitors that he's going to have to f- resolve himself. Okay. So that's good to know. Okay. So that's a good, uh, maybe just kind of appetizer on who, who Helen is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now to your favorite part Adam's favorite part so far of the entire Iliad, mm-hmm. right? The roll call. So yeah. the entire, like, back half of book two is basically a like roll call of who is here on behalf of the Achaeans and mm-hmm. then a very short uh, similar roll call for who is here on the back of you know on behalf of the Trojans yeah so right before that though just uh, to throw, throw this out there so you, you know we had Agamemnon blaming uh, Zeus you know for all the, all those troubles then he kind of starts rallying the troops and then he like threatens them if they don't fight Right. Then there's a sacrifice mm-hmm. that happens uh, for for the war. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he prays to Zeus. Zeus doesn't he- answer his prayer yet. Then you got good old boy Nestor rallying the troops up again. Right. Trying to get them all excited. And then uh, there's a momentum shift. Then they're all uh, now suddenly. This is on like uh, in between five thirty and five forty. It says now suddenly, battle thrilled them more than the journey home. Mm-hmm. Than sailing uh, hollow ships to their dear native land, so now that all of a sudden they've gone from yeah, let's get out of here to no, 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 let's 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 go to battle. Yeah, their this battle, is, their battle lust is is uh, back. Yeah, it's been nurtured by You're, our good old boy Nestor. <laughs> Nestor saves the day again. Yeah. Uh, notice too that um, this is some of that imagery that I told you that I really enjoy. Athena gets ready for war with them. Mm. Right. So here she is and she's going to don her armor and get ready for war as well. Mm-hmm. And so this is around a little bit above uh, 530. 
Down the ranks, the fiery-eyed Athena bore her awesome shield of storm, ageless, deathless, a hundred golden tassels, all of them braided tight. So again, not only is she getting ready for war, but she also kind of gives us this picture of the tasseled shield, like this thing that kind of challenges some of our imagery of kind of what we think the armor looks like. Right. Um, but I've always enjoyed these images of her getting ready to fight um, in the war. Yeah. So. So then we get the list of armies. The, the list of it armies. Basically starts, you know, right around five eighty five or so. Is when it seems to. To really start now. So um, let me ask you why, like. Uh, why, why do we have all these lists of, of guys? It's basically like this guy who sold this ship from this place. Right. Uh, he's here. And then this guy came and then this guy came. And so I think we should acknowledge, like, I, I mean, we should acknowledge that I think for a lot of people and particularly for first time readers, this section has all the charm and delight of like a biblical genealogy. Or like watching paint dry. Right. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a... It's it's somewhat mind numbing, and that's always dangerous, right? In the in the Iliad, because then you're going to miss details, right? And so, no doubt, I have I have missed details through this. Well, one of the things too that I think immediately should alert us to like something something more than just a roll call is happening here, is the fact that it begins again with an invocation to the muses. Mm. So if you look right after mm-hmm. five seventy, right, sing to me now, you muses who hold the halls of Olympus. Mm-hmm. You are the goddesses. You are everywhere. You know all things, right? Who basically like who are the captains and who are the kings? So something's going on here that's actually very important because the muses are being invoked again. So let's parse out maybe just or just maybe just list a few things I think is going on. Okay. One. It's an aristocratic audience, as we men- mentioned. Right. They draw their lineages back to these people. Like, this is a giant, like, you know, you can almost imagine them all being in the hall, like, feasting, hearing this, and, like, people cheering or making some sign of oath and fidelity when their ancestors are named, mm-hmm. right? So there's, like, which I understand is an imaginative exercise, but, like, you have to realize that there's a connection between Homer's current audience in the people in this text, right? Mm-hmm. These are my ancestors. So it's very important for them that they understand, like, this person came from this person, here's who was with him, and here's how many ships he brought in X, Y, and Z. So just for his audience, I think this has a lot of merit and a lot of value. Yeah. The other thing, um, which I don't think merits an invocation to the muses, I think what I would suggest actually merits the invocation to the muses is that Greece is not a nation, it's certainly not a modern nation state as we think about it. It's not even a kingdom. It's not an empire. It is a loose federation of city-states that are basically like always at war with one another. And so... Yeah, they, they don't even speak the same language. Correct. So one of the things I think to think about here is that one of the reasons that Homer is doing this and why he invokes the muses is that this is a unified Greece. Greece has unified under a a uh, single cause, and this is something to celebrate. This is something to invoke the divine goddesses on, right? Look, we can come together, right? Because basically, um, the the life between the the city states, the norm was war, right? The norm was antagonism. All these guys have fought against each other, right? Like, so for them to all unite in one cause, mm-hmm. right, is actually a point of celebration. It's a point of, and think about his current audience. Hey, idiots, stop all fighting each other. Right. Like, look, our ancestors united, and look, they united and, and took down a great cause. So that's reala- a good point. I realize yeah. it's not like a great read. No, I, that, that's that's a good point. So some other things, if we're listing out its purposes, um, it actually serves as the formal introduction. So we started, remember we talked about in right. media res, we started the mill story. So now, you know, we're... Bo- a lot of people we, we get introduced to just for them to die. Correct. You know, which is awesome. Correct. So, you know, we're, we're what, like 1,200, you know, more than that lines deep into the uh, Iliad, and we're getting our character introductions. Sure. Yeah. So something we, we don't need to parse out all of these, uh, but a few things. One, um, there are two people named Ajax. Yeah, that <laughs> that that is a good. Yeah, that is something good. And the 
there's the, the greater and the lesser, so to speak, the, the, the mm-hmm. great and the, and the little. I don't remember what, what, what he calls it. But. Yeah, little Ajax and, and great Ajax or Telamonian Ajax is yeah. the great one. And I, the reason that we need to mention this is basically um, later on, uh, it will mention not only who's all there, but who are the greatest warriors. And it mentions that Achilles is by far the best. Towers over all of them. Yeah, like just by a long shot. And then the second is... Telemonian Ajax. Yeah, is the great Ajax. Um, and so he's the second. So we're That's also... About 870 or so, about 873 or 4. Yeah, very good. So then we get uh, around 680, we're going to get uh, Menelaus. And remember that narrative we said, because now his own... This is uh, like 681... And his own heart blazed the most to avenge the groans and shocks of war they borne for Helen. Mm-hmm. So this is Helen's husband, and we're trying to figure out, you know, what has happened. Um, and so we get this, you know, explicit connection, uh, you know, with Helen, and we've already talked about her. Then, let's see, we get Odysseus. Again, he's called the mastermind like Zeus in 730. Then we get another invocation to the muses, right? If we haven't, if we haven't figured this out already, um, between 770 and 780, mm-hmm. uh, we get another invocation to the muses. And this one, again, is about Achilles, right? And it's interesting if there's seven... We get the handsomest man to ever come to Troy. Did you know this? Like, we, we just talked about the ugly dude. He's the, he's the most handsome? The, the handsomest man who ever came to Troy... That's on... Where is, what line is that? 769. Uh, Nereus, or I don't know how you say his name. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we do get some guy. No, I missed that one. Oh, say so we have the handsomest guy. That's, that's important. So we know that uh, we got the ugliest. We got, we got the most attractive. <laughs> it's good to know. Good. Uh, you know, we have Achilles now, who is the, um, you know, the bravest, uh, the most ready for war. Uh, a little after 790, right? It says, Achilles lays there now, but he will soon rise up in all his power, mm-hmm. right? So again, he's hanging out by his ships, presumably not still crying, uh, but he is he is there. Then we get a third invocation to the muses. There are three invocations to the muses in this book. So, I mean, it's it's hard to express how important I think this is for Homer. The third one is after 860, between 860 and 870, um, and this is where he shifts from the general roll call to what we've already mentioned, which is the bravest That's of good. them all, right? Who are they? And so then, as we mentioned, uh, Achilles is number one uh, by a long shot, and then Telamonian Ajax is number two. Mm-hmm. Then we get a short roll call from the Trojans. Um, we get introduced to Hector. Hector is uh, the son of King Priam. Priam is the king of Troy. Uh, the city-state of Troy. Hector is his is uh, his son, one of fifty, I think. And uh, Hector, though he is the main general, the main marshal of the armies. The shiny helmet. Yeah. So H- Hector misses uh, nothing, right? Because Iris, uh, which is a messenger god. Now, this is interesting. So earlier, when we talked about, um, I think in a previous episode on knowing your mythology, but also the fact that the mythology shifts; it's not stagnant. So in the Iliad, Iris is, she's the messenger god. She's the one running around. Mm -hmm. By the classical Greek time, it's Hermes. He's got like wings on his feet, on his shoes. He's always running around. He makes an appearance in here um, more as um, a a guardian, someone who accompanies someone, Hmm. um, which is somewhat fitting because he also accompanies the dead down to Hades. But he's not the general messenger Iris is, and then Iris kind of drifts away in a lot of ways in classical mythology. But if you're wondering who is Iris, you know she's she's the uh, messenger goddess. So notice that Hector also, uh, when Iris comes to him, Hector also immediately recognizes her as a divine. Mm-hmm. Again, looking at that capacity, which men have the have the capacity to understand the gods are speaking to them, even if the gods take on different forms. Mm-hmm. Right, they can see them for who they are. It says Hector missed nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few lines up from nine twenty. So we get Hector. Uh, we also get uh, Aeneas, which is a character um, that we also need to put an asterisk by uh, that's well known into the tradition. So Aeneas, uh, and he is the son of Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get another... He'll play a, a key role here pretty quick. Yeah, Aeneas plays a key role uh, in the Iliad and then plays a larger role 
in Roman mythology. So he's he, this is the beginning of his myth, mm. if you will, is right here uh, on these lines. Um, we also have Sarpedon, which is down a little past, it's right around before, actually it's the last couplet there in that book. Um, that I mentioned him because he's actually a son of Zeus. But we, before that, we have Nastes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Good him. Old oh, yes. Yeah, go ahead. He, he is, he <laughs> strolled into battle decked in gold like a girl, the fool. Yeah, yeah, he uh, has really bad decorum. Yeah, and down he went, crushed by the racing Achilles' hands, destroyed at the ford where the battle hard Achilles stripped his gold away. Yeah, so we've got one guy that went in the battle decked in gold like a girl, and Achilles just handed it to him. Yeah. And then, yeah, the last character there, like I mentioned. He deserved it. That could be true. So, so the only um, the only other thing that I would mention yeah. is the sacrifice that Agamemnon makes to Zeus, mm-hmm. right? Um, we see these sacrifices in the text a lot, and so, like, you know, can we can we, is there a better understanding that we can have of them? And so, I want to read just because I I think this played out well. I just want to read this section uh, of of our guide, okay, um, about you know what of the sacrifice made to Zeus in Book Two, so. Agamemnon prays to Zeus for victory, and Zeus denies his prayer, at least for now. It is not unremarkable that Agamemnon, as high king, offers the prayer and sacrifice to Zeus. He offers the fat and bones to Father Zeus, while the meat is feasted upon by man. The allotment of the sacrifices finds its genesis in a myth of the titan Prometheus. In addition to giving mankind the divine gift of fire, Prometheus also tricked Zeus into choosing the bones and fat as the portion due to him. As Zeus's will is unalterable, man may retain the best of the sacrifice for his own feast. So think about this for a second. So Prometheus is a titan. He's a titan, if I recall correctly, that uh, sided with the gods and the wars between the gods and the titans. So then he was allowed to endure after that. But then he uh, ends up having a fondness for humanity. So he's most famous and where he's used kind of like colloquially, right? This is a Promethean, uh, you hear that term sometimes, this is a Promethean thing, is that mankind was basically this sad, cold, miserable creature Mm -hmm. on earth Mm -hmm. uh, that couldn't cook anything, couldn't make anything, had no light, these things. And Prometheus is a titan that went up to Zeus, excuse me, went up to Olympus and stole fire right from the hearth and took it back down to man and gave man fire. Right. which then he was aptly punished for, right? He's famously chained to the side of a mountain, and an eagle comes and eats his liver every day, and his liver grows back, and then he gets eaten again, right? So Sounds terrible. It is terrible. So there's another narrative, though, um, that when Zeus was deciding what parts of the animal will be become mine, Prometheus uh, becomes the intermediary between the two, and basically, he takes the bones and and puts it all underneath the fat, um, basically all the useless parts, and puts the fat on top, making it look like that's where the choice meat would be. And then on the other one, basically puts all the meat and hides it under the skin and like other things that you wouldn't want. Mm. And so when Zeus comes down to pick what he wants, he picks the one with the fat and bones. And he's been deceived. And And so, again, his will is unalterable. So even though he's done this... So I, I think this is intriguing because, uh, as our guide explains, like recalling Agamemnon's murderous dream and his subsequent test of his men, it seems fitting that not even the religious justice of the ancient Greeks, i.e. giving the gods what is due to them, is free from cunning and deceit, right? So in this whole book, we've seen that like Zeus will trick his own kings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and work through them, and then they trick other people, and et cetera. Right, like here, here he is working his mastermind. And now, even in the myth of man giving you know, what is due to the gods, it's not free from a story of trickery and deceit. Right. Uh, which I, I think just shows you how much this actually kind of seeps down into this culture. Right about power and against if you're facing power, the answer to that is trickery and deceit. Um, and to finish that off, you know, one of the things I think we should note on a more positive tone: the sacrifice bears both a horizontal and vertical dimension. Thus, the sacrifice act, the sacrificial act, binds both the gods and man, and then man as man together. It's a political cosmic act, 
right? So you see that vertical and that horizontal dimension, right? So it makes peace, uh, hopefully, right, between uh, man and the gods, between man and Zeus. But then the second part of that is that they get the feast, and so then there's this harmony amongst the men as well. Mm-hmm. And I mention that because, you know, we, um, you know, man carries something, uh, you know, a natural uh, virtue of religion, right? Man naturally wants to give to God his due, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a supernatural act to do that. And so here, even in this, you know, obscured pagan uh, play out of how this works, even when it's uh, marred by deceit, you still see that sacrifice is supposed to make harmony both vertically and horizontally, which is the same thing that we see in the Mass, right? right? We offer the Son to the Father in the Holy Spirit. We have that vertical, right, relationship in which we're offering the the Son to Him, and we're part of that body, right? So through Him, uh, we are saved. But then we come and we receive, and we together, right, have that uh, feast on the altar, that Eucharistic feast as part of that sacrifice. And so then there's a horizontal dimension of us all coming together, not as bodies of Christ, but as the body of Christ, right? So it's interesting that even in this uh, pagan text, through all the layers of obscurity, you can see a true nature of sacrifice in man. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, again, the importance of reading uh, the book with another person. So I'm grateful right. uh, to read it with you, Deacon, and hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. You can check us out at thegreatbookspodcast.com. Uh, check out the notes that, we, that we've been going through. Uh, leave us a review and subscribe to our, our podcast. Share it with some of your friends. Um, anything else? No, I think we're good. I enjoyed it. We'll see you next week. Thank you.